We tend to think of the year 1776 as something that uh, America and uh, England was so engulfed in that we could almost think of nothing else when we think of 1776, but that was the year of which I noticed the text of that beautiful hymn, which we embrace as our own testimony, was written. So I'm thankful that many other things go on in the world besides the what we often think of as see as the daily news. Uh, we are into the daily and worldly news now as we consider Matthew 24 before us, and I would have you to turn your attention with me uh, to verses 36 through 51 as we now finish out the chapter uh, here this morning. Now hear the word of the Lord, Matthew 24, beginning at verse 36. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord, Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come in a day when he is not looking for him in an hour that he is not aware of, and will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Herein is the reading of the word of God. God. Yeah, you can do that here as well. <laughs> Let's seek the Lord's uh, spirit to guide us through this text and make the application to us corporately and individually. Our Lord, as we come to the conclusion of this chapter 24 that you were instructing your disciples uh, very close to the time in which you would bear all of our sins upon the cross and die for our sins, we are thankful for the gifts that you have given to us in salvation, eternal life, for the gift of the revelation that's before us, the gift of the knowledge of your eternal plan, the gifts of those men who've gone before us and have given their lives for the preservation of this, your word. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit which has been given to us now, particularly and fully in this, this era, in this new covenant era. We ask that the Spirit would now empower the preaching of the word and apply it to us individually and us as a corporate entity of your church, and that you would be pre pleased to bring forth much fruit of righteousness from the preaching this morning in each of our lives, and to square us up with 
the scriptures, that we would be faithful stewards of all that you've entrusted into our care. Lord, may we be ready to meet you today and tomorrow and however else long it takes before you either call us home or before you come. We pray that you would be glorified and honored in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I remember not too long ago, several weeks or so, I was somewhat relaxed in my office, my morning having just begun and kind of settling in for the work of the day and a knock came upon the door and as I opened the door there was the person with whom I had a scheduled meeting that was on my calendar of which I had not uh, looked at in the morning and which I had completely forgotten and it caught me completely off guard. I was taken by surprise, and yet it shouldn't have. It was on my calendar, meaning it had been there for some time, but I wasn't ready for the meeting. Now that's the point of the passage before us. That's the main point of the passage before us, and we need to keep the main point the main point. We should always be ready to meet our God. Whether He comes back today, even so, Lord Jesus, come, we should pray. Or whether he calls us home to be with him today, we should always be ready to meet our creator and our judge and not to be caught off guard. And that is what the passage before us is about. And as it goes into chapter 25, it will continue with those exhortations that are given to us that we might be ready and be faithful with the lives that he's given to us in the remaining years maybe days that we still have left to live. Last year I taught a class where I told the students ahead of time that they should be ready for a pop quiz anytime they come to the class. The intent of telling them ahead of time that there may be a pop quiz is so that they would indeed be ready each class time to be able to be up on the material and give an answer for that material at a moment's notice. There is a character and a discipline about always being ready with what is expected of us. It requires attention, it requires faithfulness in doing what we should be doing, as well as refraining from that which we should not. It is living life well. And this new section of the Olivet Discourse, which carries us right through to the end of Matthew 25, takes some explanation. So I'm going to give more introduction this morning than I am body of the text, and that will actually apply to us as we go into Matthew 25 in the coming weeks. I want to take some time to do this this morning uh, as we think about our future, because the way we think about our future drastically influences the way we live life today. Whether you're thinking about tomorrow, whether you're thinking about next year, next month, whether you're thinking about eternity and glory, whatever it is, that will influence the way you live life today. And walking by faith includes a life or living a life and seeing the future by what God promises us in His Word and living your life in the present according to those promises. 
And so there is a, a sight that we have, a spiritual sight that is that which governs how we are to go throughout this life, and that is we walk by faith, not by this sight. So if we get the future distorted about what's going to happen, it will impact the way that we make decisions and the way we live our life out presently. If we take heed to Jesus' admonition here in this text to always be ready to meet your God, which is his point, then we will live life faithfully today in light of what will happen come tomorrow. And that's one motivation our Lord has given us to keep us from apathy and complacency or carelessness in our life. We do not know what a day may bring forward, and I think we've had a lot of reminders of that recently in the body of of heritage, and so we need to live life soberly, above reproach, and faithfully with the stewardship that He's entrusted to each one of us for our keeping. This morning we consider the text before us, I want to provide some preliminary comments. The position that I have taken in handling Matthew 24, particularly from verse 3 up to verse 35, is a position known as partial preterism. Sometimes it's just shortened to preterism, but there is a qualifying comment there that I want to expand in just a moment. This position believes that the internal biblical evidence strongly supports, along with the external evidence, of the view that supports everything that's happened between Matthew 24, verse 3 through verse 35, has already happened, and it happened between the years of A.D. 66 and A.D. 70, when the coming of the abomination of desolation, which Daniel had prophesied specifically, and the continuation of those 70 weeks that he gave us deliberately and in, in detail, which then came after, after that which came the Great Tribulation, the climax of which in AD 70, the destruction of the temple was the coming of Christ upon the clouds of the air to judge His people that had rejected Him. And He says all of these things will no bypass away until they are fulfilled in this generation. He, he tells them that these things will happen in the generation of the people that are then living. His disciples were asking the question, when will the temple be destroyed? When will come the end of the age? And there we are describing this as the end of the Jewish age, the entire sacrificial system, the entire administration of the covenant that they have known all the way, almost from the beginning of creation up to that point in time. The end of that age is coming. And so Jesus begins to describe and answer their questions, and he says, this generation by no means pass away till all these things are fulfilled. And he makes that very clear toward the very end of that passage that we covered last Lord's Day. Now there are two other views of this passage that I want to make you aware of. I want to take a little bit of time this morning to give us a brief understanding because how we view our future affects our present living. There is a popular view, and I would say the most popular view in the 20th century, in the century, the 21st century, still the most popular view, 
not just in America, but probably evangelically around the world today because of the influence of American evangelicalism in the last 120 years upon the rest of the world. And that view is the futurist view. And what they will hold, this particular view holds, is that all of the things that we have covered so far that I have expressed already happened at 8066 to 8070 has not yet happened. And it is yet to be fulfilled prophecy and will be fulfilled only at the second coming of Jesus Christ bodily. That is the popular view today, expounded particularly by dispensationalists and not solely by that, but that is the popular view that has been expressed in the last hundred years or so. Now They believe that none of the things in this chapter have yet happened and they are still all unfulfilled. When Christ comes back at His second bodily coming, then will be the time for things to happen. In fact, he will not really be coronated as king until that time. The world will continue to spiral downward in depravity. It will keep getting worse and worse until Christ comes back to set up his kingdom here. That's the futurist view. Then, when he comes back at his second coming, that will be the time when he sets up his kingdom, but not until that time. And hopefully I've given you enough evidence to convince you from the biblical scripture that that position is not well supported in the scripture. And while the headlines of the daily news may tend to convince you of that position, we must believe the Bible is the word of God above all else and take that as the authoritative source for our understanding. Now the Gospels have made it extremely clear that when Jesus came, he came as king. He showed himself as king, even just days before our present discourse and Olivet Discourse. He openly declared he is the king. He preached the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is here, so therefore repent. He declared that when he went back up on heaven, sent his spirit, that the kingdom would continue to grow and it has been growing, Christ is seated on His heavenly throne. He is reigning over the earth through His church, and His all authority has been given to Him in heaven and earth. So therefore, we are to live in light of today, in light of that truth, that Christ is victorious and He is already seated, and we are co-reigning with Him even today, seated with Him in the heavenlies. Now, the futurist view believes all of that is still yet to take place, and that would be yet to come. Now, my particular view, this partial preterist view, believes that those events have already happened, but there is a third view that we want to be careful of because it's getting a lot of fresh um, attention these days, and that would be the full or the, what some people would call the hyper-preterist view. Now, the full preterist view holds that the coming of Christ in A.D. 70, which was not his physical coming, but it was a coming in judgment, which we have already expressed and which we would agree. But they would say that was his second coming, his final and last coming, and all of the scriptural prophecies that have been prophesied are 
now completely fulfilled. There is none left in the scripture of unfulfilled prophecy. It denies a bodily and physical coming of Christ at the last day. It denies a resurrection of the dead and a general judgment of both the righteous and the wicked upon the second and bodily return of Christ. It holds that the earth continues to go on and on in its ever-depraved, cursed state. And when believers die, they immediately are resurrected in their resurrected state, in the state of Christ's resurrection, and are in their everlasting glory. There is no unfulfilled prophecy yet remaining. Everything has already been fulfilled in A.D. 70. Now, I want you to be aware of that position because what I've expressed as a partial preterist position holds a lot in common with the full preterist position, but not those last statements which are critically important. And there has been fresh debate that has been stirred up just recently among Reformed, Presbyterian, Evangelical, uh, Presbyterian folks that you know by name, most of you do, that you need to be aware of. This is not an, a new debate, but a fresh one that's been stirred up. And as much as I would like to hope for and think that as soon as I die, I would be resurrected in the glorified state forever to be with Christ, as much as I would like to believe that, and that's a great encouraging thought. I cannot let that govern my exegesis of what the Bible says is true. There is a higher state when I die to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And as Paul says, that is a greater place than the present state that we now have. But it is not the final state, for he longed for the resurrection where he would be resurrected and then the He would be with Christ bodily, the very design in which we have been created from the very beginning, earthy and spiritual. Now hopefully you can imagine what the implications are, depending on what version, what of those three positions you might believe, you might think about what are the implications if I believe the futurist view or the partial preterist view, or the hyper-preterist view, because however I think about those future things will affect how I live today for the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to read you an excerpt, and again, I, 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 I preface this, my introduction is going to be longer than the body of the text. I'm going to read you an excerpt from David Chilton's book, Paradise Restored, which I have found to be a helpful book, But it does have some little seeds and presuppositions of concern in it. He wrote the the book of which I agree, okay? And he wrote this book from a partial preterist perspective. And he says this, quote, Since the day of the Lord, that phrase used in Scripture And it's been referenced many times, and it actually has been referred to several different events. Since the day of the Lord, references cannot all be taken to mean the same event. Christians can easily become perplexed. How can we tell which day is meant by a particular passage of Scripture? Does this render our interpretation completely arbitrary? 
Not at all. As with everything else in Scripture, its precise meaning depends upon the context. It always carries the general idea of God coming in judgment and salvation. But its meaning in any single verse must be discerned by examining the larger setting. Thus, to return to the question with which we began this chapter, how can we be certain that any reference to the day of the Lord, the judgment, or Christ's coming as speaking about the end of the world and Christ's second coming? Since collapsing universe terminology is used for the judgment in AD 70, and because of the tremendous theological significance of that judgment, some have supposed that all eschatological events must have been fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, and that the second coming took place then. According to this interpretation, which might be called post-everythingism, we are now living in the never-ending limbo era with literally no prophecies left to be fulfilled. The world will just go on and on and on and on until he goes on. Is such an interpretation valid? We should note, at least in passing, that the church through all the ages has never allowed for such a view. All the creeds have declared a future coming of Christ, the resurrection of all men, and the general judgment to, the, to be fundamental, non-negotiable articles of the Christian faith. The closing words of the Athanasian Creed, one of the three universal creeds of faith, underscore the importance of these truths. And then he quotes that relevant portion. The basic tenet of the church universal is solidly based on Scripture. While there have been many days of the Lord in history, the Bible assures us that there is a last day, which is to come the final judgment when all accounts will be settled and both the just and the unjust receive their eternal rewards. Each time he used the term, Jesus inescapably connected the last day with another event. In John 6, 38 through 40, he says this, quote, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father that sent me, that all he has given to me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes him have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In the same, uh, same chapter in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. In verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Chilton goes on, the resurrection, therefore, is an event inextricably bound up in the events of the last day, the final day, when judgment of the Spirit in the cloud will be absolutely comprehensive and complete, when God's final and ultimate verdict is pronounced upon all creation. That is, the day when the dead will be raised, those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, and those who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of condemnation quoting John 5.29. The resurrection is the interpretive key. Because Jesus connected the resurrection to the last day, we can use it as a control in examining eschatological passages. While the day of the Lord, or the collapsing universe motif, runs throughout biblical text on judgment, 
The distinguishing mark of the last day is that the dead will be raised. The resurrection of all men is, in the nature of the case, unrepeatable. It is not a continuing motif, but rather a part of the final eschatological event. Therefore, wherever the Bible mentions the resurrection, it is speaking of the last day, the final judgment, the ultimate day of the Lord. And I end the quote there. Probably the most extensive quote I've ever read in a morning message. It's very unfortunate that not long after the book was published, Chilton moved from his orthodox position into hyper-preterism. The very thing that he said has not been embraced in the 2,000 years of the church as orthodox. And everything about the post-everythingism that he then spoke against and what the quote I just gave you, he moved into. It is important to know these positions because your view of the future has direct impact on your present living and it also has impact on your eternal soul. The man who wrote the foreword for that book later called him a heretic for his full preterist position, a position that he admitted, um, that he admitted, the author admitted denied the historic position of orthodoxy and that the church has never embraced that full preterist position for the 2,000 years of its life. Now, I took time this morning to, to expound on that a bit because it is a fresh debate out there and it is something that if you give emphasis to eschatology in such a way that everything else is, is crowded out of the view and that Christ is, is seen more as a system than He is the Lord of heaven, it can lead us, it can, not necessarily does, to fall directly out of orthodoxy. Now I'm, I confess, and I, I think I've qualified it up front here when I began Matthew 24, that I am no prophecy expert, I am no eschatological guru, I take the position from Matthew 24 up to verse 36 um, that has been fulfilled in A.D. 70, but I take it from verse 36 forward to unfulfilled prophecy that we yet look forward to. And that will happen at the second coming of Christ. I am still looking for Jesus to come in a bodily, physical time. I am looking for His coming to be that which He will judge the world. There will be a general resurrection. There will be a separation of the sheep and the goats. There will be that which uh, rewards the righteous and it gives the rewards to the wicked according to their evil deeds as well. So I'm going to take this passage that we began with this morning... And I'm going to couple it into the future and couple it with chapter 25. Now, some will argue that this text still fits the, uh, the Matthew 24 account of A.D. 70, and there are some who take this position that are not full preterists. So I want to make sure that we make these distinctions. But I want to go through briefly some of the reasons why some would see this with Matthew 25 as the second coming and why some, including myself, would see this particular passage 
as the dividing point between the past and the future. Now, the challenge with prophecy is that prophetic scripture is a particular genre that we need to interpret and let scripture interpret itself. But prophecy has always been given with an intentional ambiguity regarding the timing of events. That is a very spirit, deliberate, intentional uh, manner in which prophecy has always been given. In fact, even when Jeremiah prophesied of the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity, it was still a question, when did that actually begin? Because there were actually three events that it could have been that way. So there is this intentional ambiguity of prophecy. And that intentional ambiguity regarding the timing of events and the chronological aspect of those events is that which is useful and de de deliberately intended to stir us up to be watchful and ready and faithful at any moment for your pop quiz. Now, prophecy, unlike the, uh, historical uh, scripture, is not, even with its predictions, pre-written history. Because the difference between history, history has a chronological explanation of when the events happen relative to each other. Prophecy does not have the chronological element of time according to those events. So as we look at prophecy on a timeline, but we look at it from the position of the prophet who is then giving it to the people of his time, we are looking at perhaps multiple events in the future, but we're looking at it this way, not this way. And as we look at it this way, there may be multiple events all lined up as mountain peaks and valleys have a difference and they pull the, the distance if we look at it from a chronological, but from the perspective of prophecy, we are not given that, in, that, that privilege to see those things line up and there's an intentionality there. So oftentimes when we think about the day of the Lord from the prophet's perspective, sometimes it includes one event and another event, but it's all talking about one and the same thing. So the day of the Lord in which God would bring the judgment upon um, Israel in AD 70, Joel chapter 2 also speaks about the, the same event being the time in which the Spirit is being poured out on the church at Pentecost. Those are separated by about 40 years, but it's viewed as the same event. Other times, we have other days of the Lord separated by even further. Uh, so that's a prophetic, what we call a prophetic telescoping in the way that prophecy is intended. So we have to be very careful in terms of dates when we are viewing and interpreting prophecy. There is an ambiguous time element that is intentional, and that intentionality is to work something in our spirit to cause us to be ready. That is the point that Jesus is speaking of here. Now I want to take a few <clears throat> moments. Yeah, I'm still in the introduction. But remember, this is an introduction for where we're going the next several weeks. I thought it was important for us to take the time to do this because if you get interested and you start studying out these things, I just want you to be aware 
of some of these positions. At the same time, I want you to take out of the passage the intentionality of which we are to take. So I want to consider a few aspects that distinguishes this passage beginning at verse 36 from what has preceded it and from chapter and, and, and coupling it with chapter 25. give you a, a number of points. I don't know how many, uh, maybe four or five. Let's consider those fairly briefly. The previous passage was very explicit with signs in order to show when these events would occur. That was the disciples' question. Jesus said, not one stone in this temple is going to be left upon another, as they were showing him the, the temple buildings. He's, and they said, when will that happen, Lord? And when will be the end of the age? And Jesus began to explain. He said, well, there's going to be these kinds of signs, but the end is not yet. But when you see the abomination of desolation, you know the end is near. And then that's the time to flee because then the great tribulation is coming. Then Jesus is coming with the clouds in the air. And so he's given them very specific signs and they would recognize that and they would know these things with specific signs. But that's not going to be true from this portion on into chapter 25. There actually is going to be a more ambiguous aspect that is intentional there. So there will be no signs there will be this intentional ambiguity of the events that he describes here, uh, and that will fit better, I think, as we think about what the purpose of chapter 25 is. And we go to chapter 25, we just drop our eyes down to verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour which the Son of Man is coming. That's the theme that we have in our present passage. A second reason why I'm going to particularly take this passage and group it with chapter 25 and still look at that as future is that the nature of everything spoken of in this portion of the chapter is much more general and does not have the specifications that were given in the previous section of the, of the chapter. Here there are warnings uh, given to people to be alert and ready for a surprise visit when they least expect it. There's nothing to be warning them about something that is about to happen. Number three, there is an argument that Ken Gentry makes here between this generation and that day. And that's the, the transition point in which he sees in verse 36 when it says, but of that day. He had just previously stated in verse 33 of chapter 24, this generation will not pass away till all these things uh, happen. And he's contrasting this generation with the things that happened in AD 70 to now that day which is yet in our future. You may agree or disagree with that particular argument, but it is one that is to at least consider within the context of the fullness of all of these other points. In the first case, Jesus was specifically informing them when. He clarified to the present generation. But now there's a change and a vagueness in the timing that seems to indicate a new subject, though it is not unrelated. And it shifts then to this generation more specifically with all the specifications, to then that day with much more intentional vagueness. A fourth reason is that the passage turns in character, not only to a negative judgment, which has already been previously uh, expounded, 
But in the judgment that he is now speaking of from this point forward is a time not just a judgment of the wicked, but also the judgment of the righteous where they will receive their righteous rewards. And that didn't happen in A.D. 70. And so that's still something of our future at the last day in the general resurrection and general judgment. A fifth reason is in chapter 25, it's clear that the passage there is expounding points of the last day when Christ does return and he separates the the sheep and the goats and the wicked from the righteous. And he judges not only the righteous, but he does judge the, 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 I'm sorry, judge the wicked, but he also judges the righteous and gives them their reward. So the whole character of chapter 25 is going to be that direction. So if you see the remaining of chapter 24 as connected with the previous events of AD 70, there does seem to be a significant shift in chapter 25 that I think must be kept distinct in our future. And with that very long introduction, let me go over a few points now of the passage before us. No matter which perspective we take, we're left with the balance of 20, chapter 24. The principle still very much applies. Number one, no one knows the day when Christ returns and judges. Number two, up until that time, life is going to go on as usual right up to the last minute, illustrated by Noah. And number three, it's going to divide workers and colleagues and families just right down the middle and very unexpectedly. Now, the point for them is the same point it is for us today. Always be ready to meet your God. Whether He comes today or whether you die today, the end result will be the same. You have your last opportunity in this life to be faithful, and for that you will be judged thereafter. There is a day coming, a day in our future, that John refers to as the last day, where there is a reckoning for which we all must be prepared. In verse 36, Christ himself said, only the Father knows of that day and time. And no matter what your eschatological position, you must avoid setting dates. That includes looking at the news. And then reinterpreting something on Daniel so that you know the end is near. That is setting a date, even though it's maybe general. Setting dates, whether specific or general, goes against the very intentional nature of prophecy, which is to be ambiguous on the dates so that it gives us an impetus and a motivation to always be ready. In my lifetime, there have been some premillennial dispensationalist uh, vocal eschatological gurus who have convinced a number of people regarding specific dates, dates when Christ will come back. I remember uh, several of these back in the 80s. One particular one was a very significant one where it had a lot of the following people quit their jobs, sold their homes, sold everything they had, and sat and waited for the date to come. The date came, and it went. 
Now they're out of a job and they're out of all their goods. How you think about your future has impact on the decisions you make in your present day. They lost everything, at least earthly. Some post-millennial gurus have set more general dates, suggesting that Christ's return cannot be imminent. And there's a whole expression of why we cannot believe in the imminent return of Christ. And there they would say that there are still hundreds or even thousands of years left to fulfill what Christ has prophesied. And, and that too is just as faulty. Because it still generally puts a date to it of which we think we know. And yet, it does not. As far as you and I are concerned, Christ could come back at any time and there is nothing left to fulfill that He cannot fulfill before He returns. Be ready to meet your God. It may be several thousands of years in the future. That is not for me to know. It may be tomorrow. Would to God it would be right now. But we cannot set or generalize about the timing of His return. It defeats the very purpose of passages like these that are intended to keep us watchful, faithful, ready, trusting the Lord at all times, night and evening, and to be living the lives that He has called us to live. So the gist of verse 36 is that Jesus' disciples are morally bound to repress all desires to know what no one knows but the Father, not even the angels, and that is specific, the specific time of His coming. We must always be ready for the Lord's coming because it will come suddenly and it will come unexpectedly. That's where you're going to see the nature of this particular portion of chapter 24 differ from the previous portion. He's going to illustrate this in two ways. It's going to come suddenly and it's going to come unexpectedly. The first illustration he's going to illustrate here is that uh, one of the analogy of Noah. Noah was told by God that a flood was going to come. Noah didn't doubt it. Noah began to live his life making decisions today on what he knew was coming tomorrow. God told Noah to do something that seemed illogical, build an ark. There was no water around. Build a huge boat for no apparent reason. The time frame to build the ark was going to be about 120 years. The reason of the unawareness was not necessary, or not because there was no warning, but it was because of the people's unbelief. And their unbelief led to disobedience. And their disobedience is unfaithful, and that leads to judgment. And that's the same cycle every time. Hebrews 11, that wonderful chapter on the hall, hall of fame of faith, it says in verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear and prepared the ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. In verse 39 of this chapter, when understandingly, we, when, when people finally will come to the understanding that the end is here, like in the days of Noah, it will be too late. The point of that illustration of Noah 
is that life's just going to go right on. Um, right on as usual. People marrying and people just going about their work and everything is just the same as it ever was yesterday and it will be today and it will be tomorrow and they just go right on and it's going to be sudden and unexpected when it comes. That's the point of the illustration of Noah. The second illustration given in verse 40 through 41 illustrates again what's going to take place. Um, One is going to be taken and one stays. Now, this is not rapture theology here. That's not the point. Uh, If your mind has been so conditioned to think this way because you haven't given due consideration to other possibilities, it may be difficult to shift your paradigm away from that. The point of these analogies is that there will be an actual separation that will occur that will take place suddenly and unexpectedly at the time when Christ returns. And that separation will happen between family members, between men working in the fields, in the factories. It will happen between mother and daughter and mother and son and husband and wife, quite unexpectedly. And those who are taken away are not those who are raptured up to Christ in the church. Those who are taken away are taken away to judgment. And the point here is that Christ's return will separate right down the middle people in just everyday relationships, and it will come suddenly and unexpectedly. Life is going to go on, and then it will suddenly and radically change. In verse 42, again, there's an emphasis on this passage of being watchful. Be ready, be ready. He gives a, a, a third illustration about a thief coming at the night, and if the owner of the house knew in which time the thief would come, he would have been ready for him. So we're ready at all times, morning and evening, with our entire lives. The passage closes with an exhortation to be wise and ready as a faithful steward. So when the Master comes, He will greatly bless you. See, the passage is not all negative. When the Master comes, He finds the child of God prepared, faithful, even during the Lord's delay, and richly rewarded upon His return. And for the faithful, we long for this judgment I want to close with some applications for us. How are we to live our life faithfully day in and day out? Number one, the first step is be prepared to meet the Lord by following Jesus in faith. That's why he says in Luke's gospel, he says, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself daily. Pick up your cross. It's a daily thing. And follow me. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You have to walk by faith, not by sight, and you have to trust Jesus today. That's the first step in being prepared to meet the Lord. Secondly, we have an obvious teaching that Christ here is giving for the necessity of being faithful and diligent in the work that He has given to us. When He saved us, He saved us unto good works that we should walk in them. Each one of us has a different path and different works of which we will be held responsible. And that's what we need to be faithful in. And we should always be ready and be faithful. So what are four marks of a faithful and wise steward? 
Number one, a faithful and wise steward redeems the time. He's not slothful. He doesn't waste his life. And that's why the Scripture exhorts us, redeeming the time for the days are evil. A faithful steward redeems the time. Secondly, a faithful steward utilizes his resources. That is, the God-given gifts that he has given to each one for the growing up of the kingdom. Whether that be material resources, spiritual resources, he uses the resources that God has given him for the building up of the kingdom. He serves. He ministers. Number one, he redeems the time. Number two, he utilizes his God-given resources. Number three, he perseveres under pressure and discouragement. Faithfulness is proven in the crucible of waiting in trial. This is where many fall away. This is even the parable of the soils, that it, it sprang up quickly, but then when the heat of the sun, these were considered the, because of the trials for the word's sake, they fell away. The perseverance has given us a grace by the Spirit to persevere. It is Him that worketh in us to do of His good will and pleasure. And we are to do all things without complaining and murmuring. But it is this standing up, this bearing up under the pressure of trials when discouragement is enveloping us and yet staying true to trusting in Jesus and following Him by waiting. Waiting. That will be the test of your faithfulness. Can you wait on the Lord when things are upside down? Can you wait each day in prayer and trust that He will make all things wrong, right? Can you wait upon that day? Can you wait? Can you delay self-gratification for that one day when He's going to come and make it all right? Can you wait? So, a faithful steward redeems the time. He utilizes his resources and he bears up and perseveres under pressure and discouragement. But four, a faithful steward will remain faithful when the times are good. Oh, how often we come out of the ditch of a trial and then we just forsake the Lord. We were on our knees every day during those difficult times. And then the good times come and there's peace and there's shalom. And, and then we so easily forget our God. But faithfulness is proven also in those good times of plenty. But that's a time when many of us slack off in our praying when life is going well. We get a little too self-dependent, self-reliant, not relying upon the Lord. And people slack off in their church attendance after the crisis is over. But faithfulness is proven as much on the mountaintop as it is in the valley. Be faithful with the life that God has given you at all times and all seasons with everything you have until the very end of your life or until he calls you home. Let's be faithful. Our Lord God in heaven, there is no one faithful like you who has done all of your holy will and everything that you have promised will come to pass. Everything you say 
is true. You've proven yourself in the past over and over, and you are faithful even when we are not. We are thankful that you're faithful to your covenant, that you're faithful, that you will give us your blessings for those who remain faithful to you. We are thankful that you are faithful to give us the sustaining grace in our daily bread each day that we live. We are thankful that you are faithful to your covenant. You do not lie, you do not renege, you do not change your mind, you do not go back on your word, you do not, uh, you prove yourself faithful over and over again. There's no reason why we should not trust you fully, and yet we don't. Forgive us. We pray that you would make us more faithful in those good times. And that we would bear up in faithfulness in the difficult times. With everything that we have, our life, our time, our resources, our money, our spiritual gifts, our relationships, may we give them all to you and be faithful with that stewardship that you've entrusted into our care. And may we be faithful with our time. For our time is our life. We pray that we would redeem the time, make the most of the opportunities and not pine it away or waste it in matters that will not be profitable for your kingdom. And there are so many time wasters, Lord. Deliver our children and us from these time wasters and help us to be about the good work of your kingdom so that when Christ comes or you call us home, We can hear those words for which we long. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Lord, may everyone here this morning hear those words and not a single one be lost. Lord, we have so much to look forward to and we pray that we would delay so many of the things that we long to do for For the day of the future, that we might be about the business of the kingdom today. And we pray that you would stir us up to love and good deeds and to the righteous work that you've given us to do. And we pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.